Happy Father's Day, all of you. Some amazing men in this church. Thank you for being real men. For loving the Lord, for protecting your families, for providing for your families, for being men of prayer, for being faithful. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers. What a blessing to serve alongside you. I love it. We're finishing Ezra. Ezra has ten chapters. We're in chapter ten today. It's a great, great chapter. It's it's a serious chapter. I don't know if you woke up this morning saying, God, I hope Pastor Mark preaches on sin. Because if you did, you, your, your prayers are answered. Hey, I just preach what's there. Don't, don't blame me. If you've got issues with chapter 10, take it up with God. Leave me out of it. Um, but that means we're starting a new book next week. We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Now, guess what that means your homework is? What are you supposed to do when we start a new book? Read the book in one sitting. Okay, so here's, God wrote a letter to a church. The church is in Ephesus. Through Paul, but God wrote a letter. If God writes me a letter, I'm probably going to start it and I'm going to finish it in one sitting. I'd be curious to know what God has to say to me, right? So I want to encourage you to do that. At least once this week, 20, 25 minutes, try to read from Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 6. It's just six chapters. If you can do that more than once, I'll give you a candy bar. If you can prove, if you can prove, you have to prove it to me. If you can do it every day between now and next weekend, try to read the book of Ephesians more than once, but at least once in one sitting, okay? I, th- I think I got that. We <laughs> have a child dedication, a baby dedication today. Yeah, for Hayden and Caitlin, the writer family. So why don't you guys come up? What happened? Is it a bad start? Oh, your people fell out. You guys just stand right down there. That's perfect. That's just perfect. And I'm going to scooch around you. So this is Hayden and Caitlin Ryder, mom and dad. And this is Jackson. We have a few Jacksons in church. And then this is, check this out. This is a cool name. Anderson Piaggio Ryder. Anderson is A-N-D-E-R-S-Y-N. That's pretty cool. I mean, it's not Mark, M-A-R-K. But hey, what are you going to do? It's too late now. Let me get my glasses. I can kind of see and I kind of can't. Depends on how excited I am, and I'm pretty excited. And then you guys have some family here as well, right? Some grandparents and sister? Yeah? Raise your hand if you're family. Thanks, you guys, for being here. What a cool day. Love doing this kind of stuff. Days like today are ones that we just we love and we treasure as a church family. God established the home as one of the most vital institutions on earth. And so we come today not only to ask God's special blessing on this new life, but also to challenge and encourage Hayden and Caitlin to be godly parents who will love and care for Anderson and for Jackson, of course, and, and give Anderson every opportunity to live the kind of life that God wants him to live. The purpose of a child dedication is for the parents, really. For parents with the support of their family and friends to to pledge their commitment to raise their children in the knowledge of God. It is a time not only to dedicate the child, of course, but for parents to recognize that they are dedicating themselves to raise their children in the love and the truth of the Lord. Hayden and Caitlin, the Lord will certainly hear your prayers for Anderson, for sure. But He also expects you to teach His Word to Anderson diligently as you help him to navigate through this difficult thing called life. It is also a time for the congregation to pledge to come alongside the family in a commitment to help instill the truth of God's Word into the lives of all of our church families. Will you do that, church? Psalm 127 says that unless the Lord builds your house, the builders labor in vain. Children are a heritage from the Lord. They are a reward from Him. Congratulations. Deuteronomy 6 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up because God's always at work everywhere. And what this means to me is that teaching your children about the wonders of Christ is 24-7. 
Day and night, no matter where you are or what you're doing, everything should reflect upon the wonders of our good Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ as you diligently teach your children as you go through life together. Hayden and Caitlin, do you stand before us and before God today seeking to be godly parents to Anderson? Do you commit before God and these witnesses that you will do all that is within your power to maintain your home where Anderson will be cared for and loved? And do you commit to raising this child to love and honor God with all of his heart? With that, I remind you again that God has graciously given you this child. He belongs to you. But in a greater way, he belongs to our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you with the gift of infinite value that you have entrusted to Hayden and Caitlin. We celebrate the birth of Anderson this morning and pray that you fill Hayden and Caitlin with an abundance of wisdom. Enable them to be parents that will make the difference of a lifetime in their son's life. Help them, Father, to stay in tune with your Holy Spirit as you provide Hayden and Caitlin with the internal guidance that they and little Anderson will need. Bless their home with warmth, provision, and safety. Fill their grandparents and extended families with your love so that this family will experience kindness, mercy, and hope with regularity. Prepare this precious soul for the abundant life that is found only in you. As a church, we open ourselves in a fresh way to be used by you to help shape and encourage this family. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and everyone said, Amen. Now, I don't want to be presumptuous. Did you guys get all the photos you need? Because if you want me in any of those photos... I'm totally okay with that. It's only $5. It's only 5 bucks for every photo that I'm in. It's $15 if I'm not in the photo. Okay, you ready? I'll get the 5 bucks from you later, okay? Right. I can't explain it. I've just got issues, man. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. All right. Got pages everywhere. All kinds of stuff going on. Hey, check it out. So a certain university, which had an established football program, desperately wanted a mascot. And so they decided to get a goat. The question that quickly arose was, where, where are you going to keep the goat? So two students, roommates, offered to keep the goat in their dorm room. The head of the sports department got wind of this crazy idea and decided to approach these two students and inquire about this um, possibility. So he says, I hear you two are thinking about keeping the goat in your dorm room. Well, what about the smell, he goes on to ask the students. So one of the students replied, I'm pretty confident that the goat will get used to it. That's, That's the end of the story. The moral of the story is that although the goat may indeed get used to a bad smell, our Lord does not when it comes to sin. Sin stinks. It's ugly. It's smelly. It's a violation. It's a transgression of the law of God. And God can never get used to that kind of bad smell in our lives because He's holy. He wants us to be holy as well. He commands us to be holy. We're in Ezra 10. It's an interesting way to end a book. But boy, Ezra is being really clear about what's important. Turn to Ezra 10. I don't know if you had a chance to to read ahead uh, or to read Ezra 10 before today. There's a lot of names in there, and I've already impressed you with my ability to read names, so I'm not going to do that this morning. But we'll talk about it. Ezra 10, starting in verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying, (laughs) making confession weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God. A very large assembly of men, women, and children. What a beautiful sight. They gathered to him, and they began to weep bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God. We disobeyed God. We have married these foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for us in spite of this. Oh, so true. Let us now make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel 
of my Lord, you, Ezra, and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let our lives be determined or run or live. Let it be done according to God's word. And then Shechaniah says to Ezra, Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. But we will be with you. Be courageous and act on our behalf. And so Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all the nation of Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they did that. They took the oath. And then Ezra rose from the house of God. And he goes into this chamber And although he went there, he didn't eat bread nor drink water. He was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They confess their sin. They say we're guilty. And he goes and fasts and prays for them. And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days from the entire nation, according to the counsel of the leaders and elders, all of his possessions would be forfeited and he himself would be excluded from the assembly, from God's people, which is what King Artaxerxes gave him authority to do back in Ezra chapter 7. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin, so the entire nation of Israel, assembled at Jerusalem within three days. And it was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God trembling because of this matter, because of their sin, and because it was raining. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, (laughs) imagine, I don't know if I can do this, looking at an entire nation of people and say, you have been unfaithful. And you've married foreign wives, and you've added to the guilt of all of Israel. Now therefore make confession, church, to the Lord God of your fathers, and do His will separate yourselves from that sin. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, how beautiful is this? That's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people, and it's raining, and we are not able to stand out in the open, nor can this task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at an appointed time together with the elders and judges until the fierce anger of our God is turned away from us. And then verse 15 talks about there's four people that oppose this idea but the rest of the nation in verse 16. But the exiles did so. And Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of households for each of their father's households, all of them by name, And so they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate. And they finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first of the first month. So for 90 days, they found out what was going on in the entire nation. Who was guilty of what sin? Or who was guilty of taking foreign wives? We've done this more than once. I want to put up the timeline because I think this is important for us to continue to understand. We've seen this, right, more than once? You know, in 605 B.C., God's people are getting exiled. They're getting uh, sent to Babylon from Jerusalem because of their sin. And then there's a second deportation. Then there's a third deportation. And then they start going back in 537. And they start to rebuild the temple And then the temple work stops. And then the temple's completed. And then Ezra shows up. And then Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls. And so if you go from the start of that list, 605, all the way down to 444, that's 100 and, what is that, 161 years? 161 years. Why? Why is all this stuff happening on this list? Because of sin. 160 years of history All these things happened because sin had entered into a people group. And so sin just does that. It destroys things. And so things got destroyed. And then they had to get restored. And thankfully we serve a God that restores. But look how long it takes. Perhaps there's some of you like me who have parts of our lives that are affected because of somebody else's sin. Right? We have that. Our sin sometimes affects others. Sometimes we've been affected by the sins of others. And you see that in this timeline. It's like, wow, it didn't have to be like this. It didn't have to be 161 years of trying to restore stuff that should have never broke down to begin with. 
Look at the next slide. We, we've, we've, saw, we've seen this slide a few times as well about how the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah talk about the restoration of the temple because it was destroyed, the community because it was destroyed, the city because it was destroyed, the walls because it was destroyed. Why were these things destroyed? Because of sin that entered into a people group. Grateful that God restores, but it didn't have to be like this. So sin is destructive. And so when Ezra's concluding his book, he's saying, hey, look, we've done this stuff already. Let's not do it again. Let's not waste another 160 years. Here's our outline for our verses this morning. Verses 1 through 4 is the nation of Israel acknowledging and agreeing that they have a sin problem. They had taken some foreign wives that were an abomination because they served foreign gods or false gods. And so they acknowledged their sin. And then the next four verses, verses 5 through 8, is that they agreed to do something about it. Not just to acknowledge it, but they agreed to address it. We're going to get rid of that sin. And then they assembled as, as one and dealt with sin collectively. It's a beautiful picture. And then they allowed some representatives of all their people groups, the leaders of these families, to investigate and to analyze who was guilty. And that's the rest of that chapter. And you list all these people, over a hundred men that were guilty. And some were priests and some were Levites of taking foreign wives, which was forbidden. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I thought this was, I thought this was helpful. We just read through the, kind of the main crux of it. We didn't get into the list of all the people. We don't have time. But I want to go through the first 16 verses in a highlight so we get a gist of this message. In verse 1, we see that Ezra was praying. And then a large assembly shows up and they wept bitterly. And they said, we've been unfaithful. But here's the key. Because sometimes we're unfaithful, right? They say, yet now there is hope. Now let us make a covenant to put away our sin, to get rid of our sin according and walk according to God's law. Then Ezra rose and he made the leading priests, the Levites, and who? All of Israel take an oath to address their sin. Pretty serious stuff. And then after they do that, it's like, yeah, you guys are guilty. You take an oath. And then what does Ezra do? He goes into a chamber and he mourns over their unfaithfulness. He doesn't, he doesn't hurl accusations. He doesn't say, oh, naughty you, shame on you. He continues to mourn and pray for those people. And then all the exiles, they assemble. He says, all you exiles, you assemble at Jerusalem. If you don't come, you'll be excluded from the assembly. And so all the men assembled. And they trembled because they recognized their sin. The entire nation. And then Esther says, you have been unfaithful. There's guilt. Make confession. Do God's will and separate yourselves, which means to be holy. Separate yourselves from your sin. And the assembly said, right? That's right. That's right. It is our duty to do, for we have transgressed greatly. Let our leaders represent all of us until the fierce anger of God is turned away and we are cleansed from our sins. And so they did. They convened and they investigated and they finished it on the first of the first month, 90 days later. Can you imagine? Hey church, welcome to the Rock Community Church. We're going to run the 90-day investigation of your sins. And then we're going to talk about it. See you here in 90 days. That's what's happening. It's pretty cool. Okay, we're going to get into our four stanzas, but we're going to pray first. And I'm going to have somebody pray for us. Do you guys remember back in March, not so long ago, a couple months ago, I preached at a little church, or in a little town, at a home church in Clarksville, Texas. Do you guys remember that? I had a big smile on my face when I got back. It was like one of the coolest things I've ever done, right? Well, Pastor Mark and his wife, Brianna, are here. They're on vacation. They flew in on Wednesday into Ontario. They're staying up in Big Bear, and, and they're going to hang out with Terry and I all day after today. And I asked Mark and Brianna if they'd come up. I want you to see them so you can hug their necks and love on them. And I asked them to open us up in prayer. Um, thank you for doing that. Yeah. Beautiful church you have. Man, I'm not talking about the building. The building's nice. I'm talking about the people. 
You guys are the church. That's what's awesome. Beautiful. Everyone has been nice. I knew when we walked through the door that Jesus was here. Because home is in your heart, and everywhere you go as a Christian, it doesn't matter about your accent. All accents aside. All accents aside. Jesus is in your heart. And that's where home's at. Amen? I love it. He's my mentor, by the way. I said, man, you've been successful at everything. I need to know how to do that. My lovely wife, Brianna, been by my side through the whole thing. In our house for three years now. Woo! (laughs) Amen. I'm honored to open in prayer, so that's what we're going to do. If you'll bow your heads with me. Father, we come before you today. Oh, what a beautiful day. Just gathered in your name to worship the fellowship with like-minded believers. Father, as the word comes forward, penetrate our hearts. I pray that you become more real to us today than you were yesterday. Help us to take it serious when we offend you and to take the necessary steps to make amends. Father, we just glorify your name. I want everything in my life to glorify you. And I pray that as this church moves forward that you would bless it, Lord. It's, it's, it's going forward. It's blessing people in Clarksville, Texas just through their prayers. And we appreciate that, and I know you do too. It blesses you when we stand together. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Aren't they cute? Aren't they just the best? Oh, my goodness. And then they got the little accent, and they just become cuter. Come on now. Really? I love those two. What a blessing. We've just collectively been so excited. We've been planning this for months and, and just talking to him every week. And he's like, man, we're counting the days. And they've just been doing a lot of resting. You know, it's, it's, it's work to pastor a church. But when that church exists in your home, it's a home church. And so they blew out some walls and they set up 50, 60 chairs in a, in a, in a living room. And I think you, you might remember that from pictures that I showed. And it's just, it, it's, yeah, they need some rest. And they're getting plenty of rest. I think Mark said he slept the first two days. Um, don't blame him. Anyway, if you've been praying for them, thank you. If you haven't, think about praying for them. They could use your prayers like we all can. Okay, we ready? Let's rock and roll. Let's, uh, let's do our first stanza, verses 1 through 4, acknowledging where the people acknowledge their sin. Let's read verses 1 through 4 in Ezra chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying, he's making confession, he's weeping, and he prostrates himself. And a large group shows up and they, say, and, they, and they start to weep bitterly. And Shechaniah, the spokesman, I suppose you can say, he says, we've been unfaithful. We've married foreign women. Yet now there's hope for us in spite of this. Oh, key words. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to God's word. Arise, Shechaniah says to Ezra, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Oh, verse 1 is just loaded with information. Verse 1 is incredible. When you look at verse 1, it makes me ask the question, what does prayer look like for you? How how often do you individually pray like Ezra does in verse 1? What does it say? While Ezra was praying, he was making confession... He was weeping and he was prostrating himself. Do you individually pray like Ezra prays in verse 1 over your sin? Do you confess your sin? Do you weep over your sin? Are you willing to prostrate yourself because of your sin? What does it mean to prostrate ourselves? Prostration means, listen, it's a more intense way of showing regard, respect, and affection to God. If there's anything you should be intense about, it should be about our, our, our Lord and Savior. Right? Do you have an intense way of showing regard, respect, and affection to God? It's also an intense way of emphasizing a petition or a request, or in this case, forgiveness for sin. It is symbolic of extreme humility, whereby we feel or show our shame and our deep reverence to God. If you've never prostrated yourself before God, oh, you should. It's pretty cool, man. It's pretty cool. Prostrate yourself before God. Confess your sins. Weep over your sin. Abraham fell prostrate when God appeared to him and promised him a son. Moses and Aaron were often found in Scripture in this posture. 
Elijah cast himself upon the earth and placed his face between his knees. Job fell on the ground and worshipped. In verse 1, Ezra's prostration shows us two things. Ezra, when he prostrates himself before God, it shows us two things. That he understands who God is. Right? And he understands who God is. It also shows us that he understands what sin is and how gnarly it is. That's why he's prostrate. Clarity of sin and clarity of God. A holy God who will not allow sin. What does prayer look like for us collectively? How often do we collectively pray like verse 1? Where it says at the end of verse 1 that a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to one man Ezra from Israel and they wept bitterly. An entire nation, a couple hundred thousand people probably by this time, come to weep for their sins. How often does that happen today? This doesn't happen. Okay. This is a safe place, right? I feel safe here. Alright, so this is a safe place. Raise your hand if you think you may have sinned sometime in the last 90 days. I'll go first. Just raise your hand if you think you may have sinned sometime. Hey, no, 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 put your hand down. We're not done. Oh, no, no. Raise it for everyone to see. Uh, yeah. Keep it up there. Raise your hand if you might have sinned in the last 90 minutes. Just kidding. Just kidding. I don't want to know. Pretty much everybody's hand was up. Right? I think I saw everybody's hand up. Verse 1 shows us an entire nation of people that gathered to weep for their sins collectively. When I said, does that happen anymore? Most people were nodding their head no. So let me ask you a question. Are you... Don't answer this question. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod your head. Don't even do anything that will allow me to indicate. Are, are you willing to gather as a large assembly and weep bitterly? Are you willing to gather as a large assembly and to weep and to confess and to pray to God because of sin? Do you have a willingness? So, don't just, so I want you right now in your heart, I'm going to ask it again and see if you say yes or see if you say no. Are you willing to gather collectively as a large assembly because of the sin that we all just had our hands up for. Okay? If you were a yes, we're going to have a night to do that. So I've challenged all three services now. I talked to, Pat, I talked to uh, Doug Renault and Kathy, who head up our prayer ministry. And if you said yes when I asked that question, that you're willing to show up, we're going to get together. We're going to do that. We're going to honor the Lord. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to weep over our sins that we all had our hands up proudly, I guess, on some level, Right? And we're going to do that. And if you're free that night, I expect you to be here. Right? I should expect you to be here. So that we can do that. And watch what God does with that. Watch how He blesses your life. Watch how He blesses this congregation. And, and, and how we treat one another. And how we, because we're taking sin serious. And what He decides to do with this church. Thank you for being willing to do that. Because I'm willing to do that too. Verse 2 was such a great model for us. Look at verse 2. Shechaniah says, We have been unfaithful. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in spite of this. What a great model for us when we pray about our sin. Because he does two things. He, he declares the specific nature of the sin. We have taken foreign women from people from a land that we shouldn't have done. God told us not to do that. Very specific. He declares the specific nature of the sin and also declares the hope that we have in our God when we declare the specific nature of our sin. Because that's what it says. Yet now there is hope. Yet now there is hope. So we have to be very specific about our sin but we also have to recognize and declare the hope that we have. We have to do both. We need to be good at both. You can't do one without the other. Imagine if we were just specific about our sin and confessed our sin, which is not bad, but then we didn't walk away with any sense of hope. We of all people have hope because God 
sent his son to die for our sins, to set us free from our sin. So we are specific about our sin, but we walk away with hope. And sometimes we don't walk away with the hope, and so we're, we're downtrodden and we're beaten down because the enemy wants to say, hey, you got sin. And we say, yes, I do. But yet there is hope. We must do both. We can't just have hope. You've sinned. Yeah, but I have hope. Oh, no, no. You've got to get specific about the nature of your sin and declare the hope. It's got to be both. Amen? Check out... Oh, I, I, make, I make a big deal sometimes about small things, but I think it's just so cool. I love the end of verse 2. <laughs> he gets specific. He says, We have married. We've been unfaithful to God. We've married foreign women from the peoples of the land. What's the next word? <laughs> say it again. Everybody say it. Yet. Oh, we're guilty. We've been unfaithful. Yet, there's hope. If it was just, we've been unfaithful, we've been unfaithful, the next word is yet. It means however, but, don't stop there, keep going, right? We've been unfaithful, yet. What's the word after yet? Huh? What's the word after yet? Now! Oh, it's not just not, hey, we, we've been unfaithful, yet in a couple hundred years it'll be much better. Or in a couple hundred days or in a couple hundred months. Now! Yet! Now! We have hope. Right now! When we get honest with God, we have hope right now. It's very important. Yet, now there's hope in spite of this. Mm. Look at verse 3. We don't stop there. Verse 3 tells us what's next. So, what's the second word in verse 3? So now, oh, so we don't just stop at verse 2. So now, let us make a covenant with our God to put away the sin according to the law, as it says in the end of verse 3. See, there's a connection there. Yet now there is hope, so now make a covenant. Now, put away the sin. Now, live according to the Word of God. Now. You have hope now. So deal with it now. Get in God's Word now. Live according to His covenant now. Mm. And so it's a trade. Really, it's a trade. You can trade the sin that you have right now for the hope that you can have right now. It's a trade. We can make that right now. Right now trading the destruction that sin brings to have hope right now. It's a trade that we can all make. We can all trade up. And yet many of us don't. Yet many of us don't. We don't make that trade. Our second stanza is agreeing. Agreeing. They agree to do something about it. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all of Israel <laughs> take oath that they would do according to this proposal. And so they all took an oath. And then Ezra rose and he went to, and he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Verse 7, they made a proclamation throughout the entire nation that they should assemble. Verse 8, whoever does not show up within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, his possessions will be forfeited and he himself will be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. Wow. Listen. For sure. For sure. It's critical to acknowledge our sin, right? It's pretty critical. We've got to acknowledge our sin. But it's quite another thing, it's quite another thing to agree or to commit to do something about our sin. It's easy to acknowledge. Pastor Mark, you got this sin in your life. Yes, I do. What are you going to do about it? Oh, Nothing. No, nothing. I'm pretty much going to do nothing about that sin. I can acknowledge my sin. That's, I, I suppose, pretty easy. Maybe we're embarrassed by it a little bit, but acknowledging something, eh, hey, you got an issue. Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I get it. But are we willing to do something about it? Are we willing to commit to doing something about our sin? Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? 
The wages of sin is what? Death. Sin kills stuff. Sin kills stuff. The wages of sin is death. I understand that Christ's work on the cross took care of our eternal salvation, but sin destroys. It brings death. It brings destruction. When we take an oath to follow Jesus Christ, we declare His sinless life over our sinful life, don't we? We are seen as righteous before a holy God because of what Christ did. We declare His sinless life over our sinful life. But we are also declaring that sin is no longer master over us. Because Jesus conquered sin and death. Sin is serious business that we need to start taking perhaps a little bit more serious. This is what Al Pacino says. He says this, Vanity is my favorite sin. Do we have that screen? Yeah, vanity is my favorite sin. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, that's, that's somebody not taking sin very serious. Oscar Wilde says there is no sin except stupidity. Well, he just proved that, ironically. Paula Poundstone, I think hers is hilarious. She's a comedian, by the way. The wages of sin are death, but at the time you take taxes out, it's just sort of a tired feeling. Like, that's hilarious. But it's not taking sin very serious, is it? So let me ask you this. The people here take an oath to get rid of their sin. They take an oath. Have you ever taken an oath in regard to your sin? Have you ever taken an oath in regard to your sin? Oh, is it getting a little uncomfortable or is it just me? Right? It's like, ah, what does that look like exactly? Have we ever taken an oath in regard to sin? What oath should you perhaps take in regard to sin? What sin would the Lord love for you to take an oath and say, it needs to go enough already? Verse 5 tells us who the audience is for this oath to get rid of sin. Look at verse 5. Ezra rose. He made the leading priests, the Levites, and who? All Israel take an oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they all took the oath. Are you afraid to take an oath? when it comes to your sin? (laughs) Are you afraid to take an oath when it comes to your sin? Are we afraid to take an oath when it comes to our sin? What a bizarre question, huh? But not really. Are we afraid to take an oath? Or is it less about fear to take an oath and is it more about our commitment to the sin? I just kind of like my sin. I'm not really fearful of taking an oath. I'm just not ready to take the oath. Hmm. Sometimes we just get really clingy to our sin. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Ezra's mourning. At the end of verse 6, it says, He was mourning over the sin, over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Do we mourn over our own unfaithfulness? Do we mourn over our own sin? Do we mourn over the unfaithfulness of others? When other people sin, is our first response to mourn for their sin, to beseech the throne of glory on behalf of the person that sinned? Or do we do something else when they mess up? May we mourn for people when they sin, like Ezra did for an entire nation. He mourned for them. He wept for them. May we do the same. Let's mourn for one another. When I mess up, please mourn for me first. Just pray for me first. Please. Let's not gossip. Let's not point fingers. Let's not get prideful and say, thank God I'm not like Jeff Cowell, which just made me like Jeff Cowell if he was in sin. Right? You get the point, right? We don't need to do that. If Jeff Cowell's in sin, the loving thing for me to do is to pray for him, to weep for him, to mourn for him if he's indeed in sin. Jeff, thankfully, you're nearly perfect. Look at what Romans 2. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Look, go to Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Go to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let 
Romans 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, (laughs) I love when God takes away our excuses. Therefore, church, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. (laughs) For you who judge practice the same things. Look, you know what I tend to find most in other people? The things that are wrong in my own life. It is just weird. So I'll go to confront somebody and I start talking. I'm going, oh, I'm kind of talking about me while I'm pointing out their stuff. And so that's the whole plank, in, you know, speck in their eye and removing the plank in my own eye. We tend to notice the very things in people that we're guilty of ourselves, the very sin in others. Verse 2 says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice that kind of behavior. Do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, which is what Ezra was doing. Verse 8, back in Ezra 10. Verse 8 tells us this. It says that whoever would not come within three days to deal with their sin will be excluded from the assembly. Does that seem kind of harsh? You don't want to deal with your sin? You're excluded from the assembly. If we don't show up, if the church doesn't show up, like they were commanded to here in Ezra 10, if we don't show up and take sin serious, are we not then also excluded from the family of God? Are we not then just like everyone else if we don't take our sin serious? Listen, what, why did the Lord send Jesus Christ? What's that? Yeah, to save us from our sins. In fact, the name Jesus means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And so if we need saving from our sin, that means we need to deal with our sin. It must mean that God sent, sent Jesus for a reason because there's a sin problem. So if we're not willing to take sin serious, are we really part of the community of God? No. We're like everybody else. God takes sin serious and He expects us to as well. Our third stanza, the assembling, verses 9 through 15, where they all get together. Let's go through those quickly. So all the men, all the nation assembles at Jerusalem within those three days. It was the ninth month. And they're all there in the open square, and they're trembling because of their sin. And so then Ezra stands up. He says, you've been unfaithful. You've married foreign wives. You're guilty. Now make confession to the Lord. Do His will and separate yourselves. And the assembly replied, that's right. Is that beautiful? That's right. Thousands of people in unison and with a loud voice. As you have said, it is our duty to do. But there's many people and it's raining and so appoint some leaders and so they can do some investigation. There's a number of reasons why believers all around the world gather or assemble as church families. To worship our Lord, which we've done to hear His Word, which we're doing, for mutual encouragement and support, as Mark and Brianna McDonald feel from you when you pray for them. But confession of sin is another reason why we gather as a church family. Did you know that? James 5, verse 16 tells us as much. It says that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we can be healed and set free from our sin. Amen? Verse 9 tells us that they were trembling. Ezra 10 verse 9 says that they were trembling because of sin. Is not our Lord, is not our sin worthy of our trembling? Remember back when Ezra was prostrating himself and when he prostrated himself, it it, it gave him a clear picture of who God is and a clear picture of what sin is. When we have a clear picture of who God is and a clear picture of how nasty sin is, it causes us to tremble, or at least it should. Is not our Lord and is not our sin worthy of our trembling? Ezra makes it pretty clear why they should be trembling. In verse 10, he says, you've been unfaithful. In verse 10, he says, you have added to the guilt of Israel. And so therefore, in verse 11, he says, make confession. 
And he also says in verse 11, do his will. And he also says in verse 11, separate yourselves from that sin. Make confession, do his will, and separate yourselves from those things which are unholy. And the only way we can do that is we have to understand God's word. So we know what his will is. So we know what sin looks like. You guys have heard me talk about, is it 2 Timothy 3.16, for all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness? All scripture. And so my way of memorizing that is it tells us what's right, what's not right, how to get it right, and how to keep it right. What's right, what's not right, how to get it right, how to keep it right. We have to be in his word if we're going to walk according to his will. If we're going to separate ourselves from what's sinful, God's word helps us to do that. And of course, the power of this Holy Spirit for sure. Look at their great response. Look at this fantastic, mature response. In verse 12, all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right. I wonder how often that happens today in any church, in any large gathering, where somebody says, You're all guilty. You're all a bunch of unfaithful sinners. They all say, you're, you're right. It's kind of weird, but it's true. So I would want to proclaim it, and then I'd want to jump in the audience and go, you're right, and then come back up and do my job. All the assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right. And it says in verse 12, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. Because we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Oh, so look, so many of you are so kind each and every week, whether it's myself or Pastor Dave or or Pastor Doug, and you compliment me or them after we preach or share God's word, whatever you want to call it. And for that, on behalf of all of us, thank you so much. Anytime you have something kind to say to me, I'm going to take it. I love it. I need all the encouragement I can get. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I want to return the compliment. Because see, I realized when I was reading this that oftentimes I don't get to return that compliment. So if I'm faithfully bringing God's Word to you and you say thank you, when you respond like they did in verse 12, if you are in the assembly and you are replying in your heart, that's right, Pastor Mark. As you have said, so it is my duty, so it is our duty to do. If and when you do that, I don't always know, but if that's you, I want to compliment you. When you say, that's right, so it is my duty to do, to do, when it pertains to sin, or whatever else in God's Scripture that I'm encouraging you in, when you say, that's right, so it is my duty to do, and you go out and you do it, I want to say thank you. I want to say, good job, good listening, good action for our God and for our King. Right? Thank you for being faithful when you hear and you reply in that way. Amen? And lastly... We're not going to read any of this in verses 16 through the end of the book where they do this investigation. For 90 days, <laughs> they investigate the sin of an entire nation. The question is, how do you go about investigating your sin? How do you go about investigating your sin? Hey, some of us pay for things to be done for us. I pay to get my dry cleaning done. I pay to have a pool man. I pay a, a lawn person or whatever we pay things people for. We pay other people to do stuff. Would you pay somebody to investigate your sin? I'm for hire. I would totally do that. And then when I'm done with you, you can investigate my sin. i got no problem with that. Zero problem. Would we pay somebody, would we take sin serious enough to allow somebody 90 days? For 90 days, I'm going to get up in your grill and we're going to figure out what the heck's going on with all the sin in your life. It's an interesting concept, but that's exactly what they did. They all took an oath, and they allowed 90 days for an investigation to take place to discover sin. And that's what verse 16 says, but the exiles did so. The exiles did so. They all agreed to take their sin serious and allowed an investigation to take place. I just think that's a great picture. And then the rest of that chapter is the results of that investigation. This person, this person, this person, this person, this person. And forever, their names are etched in our scripture. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a beautiful thing that they took their sin serious and said, I'm guilty. Go ahead, jot my name down. It's pretty cool. So, that's the book of Ezra. 
quite frankly, we don't really know much about Ezra, do we? We really don't. We know that Ezra 7.10, my favorite part of all of Ezra, we know what 7.10 tells us. It says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of God and to practice it and to teach it. He set his heart to study God's word, but to practice it and to teach it. We know from Ezra chapter 9 last week and Ezra chapter 10 that Ezra understands the power of prayer. So we know he's the man of the word and we know he's the man of prayer. Never, never, never underestimate the power of the prayers of even just one person. Never underestimate the power of the prayers of one person. James 5.16, which we had up earlier, let me show you 5.16. We didn't read this last half on purpose. That the effective prayer of a singular, righteous man, singular, can accomplish what? Much. We have a man that's dedicated to God's Word, who is dedicated to prayer, who arguably, single-handedly, because of God's Word and because of his dedication to prayer, turned an entire nation to take an oath to be serious about their sin. Listen, many of us sit in church sometimes and we wonder, how can I make a difference? How can I do much for God? (laughs) What does that verse tell us? Pray. Every single person in here can pray. And if you do, you can accomplish much. Everybody's capable of doing that. We can all pray. One man, Ezra, was able to turn the hearts of an entire nation back to the Lord through dedication to God's Word and dedication to prayer. And so Ezra's saying, look, I know it's a gnarly way to end my book, talking about sin, but we just had a problem. We don't want to go back there again. It took 160 years to unwind this, and we're starting back on that same path. I loved the book. It was so fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I'm going to pray us out, but the worship team's going to work their way back up and close us in a song. So while they're working their way up here, let me pray for us. Lord, we are so grateful for the book of Ezra. It points us to a holy God. It points us to a God that restores. It points us to a God that asks us to take our sin serious because sin kills stuff. It points us to a faithful man named Ezra who was faithful to your word and faithful to prayer and did mighty things for you. The simple man who was just nothing more than a disciplined follower of his Lord and King and just did great things for you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.